You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. This week, big in the news, is the Iran nuclear deal. And what does that mean for the oil and gas industry with the increased oil that Iran will be able to release into the global markets? All of this is happening while in the United States we're not allowed to export our oil. And that was the theme of my column this week, which is titled, Obama. Iranian oil, good. Canadian oil, bad. American oil, bad. And in my column, which you can read on Breitbart.com and many other websites, I draw a connection between Iran being allowed to release lots of new oil into the global markets, while our policies in America have prevented Canada from being able to do the same thing through not approving the Keystone Pipeline. And then in America, we're not allowed to export our oil due to a ban that was put in place in an entirely different energy era. And in our first segment today, I'm excited to have back with us for America's Voice for Energy, Dan Kish, who is the Senior Vice President of Policy at the Institute for Energy Research. And I tell you, Dan is such a wealth of knowledge on these topics. He could just be, I could just schedule Dan every week and it would make my job so much easier. But Dan, I'm glad to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Meridian. Thanks for your kind words. So what do you think about this Iran deal and the oil and, you know, what, what should we be doing here? Well, it's very interesting, Marina, because what we've got is a situation where, where as you've properly described it, um, the president's position is that Iran should be allowed to increase its exports of uh, oil into the into the world and is working very hard to do so uh, to gain money for paying for all the things that they pay for and some of those things aren't very good mm-hmm. and meanwhile we're stuck in we're stuck in neutral in the United States in a situation where numerous reports everyone from um, from IHS to the GAO to the the Energy Information Administration have come out with reports saying that we could actually lift employment and production of oil uh, here at home at the same time we put people back to work and drop the price of gasoline. So we have cheaper gasoline and more oil exports by virtue of all these reports that come in. So it's good for America's economy. It's good for our national security. It's good for our workers, uh, people who'd like to go back to work who may be suffering from the current downturn in uh, oil prices. And instead, he says, well, it's fine for Iran to do that, uh, but we can't do it here at home. And, and, and that's the rub. And Iran has huge supplies of oil. They are um, in a situation where they'd like to. Uh, their oil minister says they would like to double their oil exports. Uh, and and that's the rub right now. So Congress yeah. is currently looking at this. And um, the Senate is talking about uh, moving a bill. Senator Murkowski, the chairman of the uh, uh, Senate Energy Committee, and in the House, 
the Energy and Commerce Committee is looking at this issue and uh, maybe taking a vote a little later this year on it to try to prompt the uh, administration to do what's right. I should add, the president could do this tomorrow if he wanted to. He has the flexibility to allow it under certain terms and conditions, and he's just not done it. Well, you know, it's it's. I think it falls into his overall opposition to fossil fuels, but it's still, but yet, you know, we're making this deal that is going to allow, allow Iran to dump tons of fossil fuels, and somehow for Iran, dumping fossil fuels into the, into the global uh, market doesn't matter. But uh, everything the president's policies are is really anti-fossil fuel. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, we should make no mistake about it, and we don't have to conjure up things. It's come from his own mouth, and increasingly so as we approached the uh, United Nations meeting in December uh, in Paris dealing with global warming. All, all, uh, uh, all the people who watch the president's interests say that this is his number one interest is getting some sort of a world deal to either tax or make it harder to produce and consume uh, fossil energy. And 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 yet we have this exception for the Iranians. Um, he he. We know what he's done with the Keystone. It's seven years now, um, stopping the Canadians from uh, attracting the investment necessary to develop their second or third largest oil reserves in the world, and uh, depressing their prices. And meanwhile, it's fine and dandy for Iran, which uh, chants death to America uh, every at every turn. Uh, to increase their exports and drop the price of oil uh, around the world. Yeah, it's it's amazing um, where the priorities of this president are. But uh, I, I had uh, Phil Flynn on the show with me a few weeks back when I wrote a, another piece specifically about Iran, and he he said that OPEC, which I was not aware of until he brought this up that OPEC has an unwritten rule that if one of their member countries has been constrained from um, selling their resources under the global market, maybe due to sanctions, maybe due to a war, maybe due to internal issues, maybe an earthquake or something, who knows, that the other countries, once that country is allowed to export uh, their oil again for whatever reason, that the other countries will pull back, keeping the uh, levels, the global levels of exports at roughly the same level. But I'm not seeing that happening in this case. What do you think? Uh, I cannot imagine a scenario where the Saudi uh, where the Saudi kingdom decides to give up market share for their sworn enemy in Iran. And uh, yeah. they may have an agreement on it, Marita, but uh, right now, uh, uh, given what's happened with the agreement that the president concluded with the Iranians, the Saudi Arabians are very, very upset, very concerned about their safety and national security, just as are all the rest of the nations throughout the Middle East, and talking about acquiring nuclear weapons themselves, uh, perhaps from the Pakistanis, the idea that they right. would somehow step back, allow Iran to make more money while they take less, uh, uh, I, I don't see that at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, they, they have this, this gentleman's agreement, but I can't see in this current um, 
world market, and, and certainly Venezuela is not going to cut back on what they export. I mean, they're desperate financially. Yes, exactly, and um, and things are getting worse there all the time. So, the the all all uh, signs point towards increased supplies of oil into the world market, except from the United States, where uh, where the president has the ability to, but won't exercise it, um, stimulate our economy right here at home by just letting people go to work to do what they do best in America, which is produce oil, which is why we've become the world's number one producer of oil. Yeah, and we're seeing more jobs lost in the in the oil field. I've got many friends who have been laid off that have been, you know, got 35 years of experience, and, you know, they're the high-dollar employees, and uh, they, they've been let go. I mean, I've got the personal firsthand experience with that. Absolutely. Anybody who's close to uh, this most important industry in the United States would uh, know that that's the case and has people that we know uh, that have been affected by it. I, I want to add one thing, Marita, because I think it's important. You mentioned about how this, was a, this ban was put in place in a different energy era. And uh, I think the important thing for people to remember is that this was because at that particular time in history, we actually uh, controlled the price of oil in the United States. The government put price controls on. And so the theory was, well, if we're going to put price controls to control it, it didn't work, by the way. But uh, if we're going to put price controls on, we can't very well allow these people to slip around it by exporting it into the world market where the price Really? I, that's new. I've not heard anyone address that angle. Go a little more with that, if you don't mind, Dan. Uh, Absolutely. This was a time of the Arab oil embargo. It was um, uh, people were concerned about price increases in oil, uh, oil shocks, that sort of thing. We were having gas lines and and uh, odd and even. Those I remember well. The gas lines. Yeah, yeah, they were fun. Um, I was a kid, but I remember them. (laughs) Right, and the. and ultimately what happened is they said, well, gee, we've got to do something. And so the political response from Washington was prices are going up. We'll pass a law that says they can't. And, of course, you can never do that in a free economy. It doesn't work. It, all it did was uh, stifle investment in uh, oil development here at home. And and at the time they said, well, gee, they're just going to get around it by because the actual price in the world market is higher than it is in the United States, Will then we're allowing. So we've got to block them from exporting, and otherwise they'll ship the oil to, to Europe or something like that. Where they can get a higher price for it. Exactly. And, and of course, we live in a totally different world. Thanks to Ronald Reagan, uh, one of the first things he did was take the uh, price controls off. He said, we're not a, a socialist or communist economy. We don't do that. Lifted mm-hmm. it when he came into office. Uh, we had a, a huge boom in the early 80s in uh, uh, oil production throughout the United States, and then the price dropped in the later 80s. Um, and then we had that long period of time when prices were relatively low. So, uh, But we still have the export history. ban. We removed the price controls, but somehow that ban did not get removed. Exactly. The ban remained in place. And, frankly, before hydraulic fracturing um, and horizontal yeah, it was pretty combined. much of a mood issue, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Because every year we were every year we were importing more and more and more foreign oil and producing less and less here at home. In part because of lands being put off limits, like Anwar and uh, you know offshore and places like that. And then also uh, simply investment 
and and the fact that we hadn't cracked this technology or the combination of technology. So that's that's how we got to where it is. And so what we've got is an antiquated law that no longer applies, uh, except to hurt the United States. That could easily be waived by the president, but it looks like we're going to have to have action from Congress in order to make him do the thing that he should be doing uh, if he cared about the United States. Now, I heard one of the people who opposes lifting this ban, uh, something I read, said that we're importing the same amount of oil now that we were importing when this ban was put on place. We don't have a lot of time left, but can you address that? Well, the, you, first of all, you have to put the numbers in a relative sense. Our consumption is different than it was. We're a much bigger country, much bigger economy, and all the rest. Some people who are currently benefiting, some of the refiners who are making uh, large amounts of money uh, uh, because they are the the price the the price that they pay for that oil uh, has been artificially. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that in our next segment with Toby Mack, so we're going to cover that discount factor. Oh, Good, good. Well, in, 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 I would basically say, listen, we are headed in the right direction production-wise, and we could do more so. I've mentioned before that we have hundreds of years of oil in various forms in the United States. We have Canada's reserves. We could become an energy powerhouse in North America combined with Mexico, Canada, um, and, and it's only the anti-fossil fuel um, uh, machinations of the uh, green left and the president who listens to them that uh, keep these things from happening, Marita. Yeah, last, my last week's column was on Mexico's energy reforms as they had their first energy auction. We're out of time for this segment of America's Voice for Energy. We've been talking with Dan Kish, Senior VP of Policy for the Institute for Energy Research. And, Dan, as we close, you want to give out your website. Uh, Instituteforenergyresearch.org. How clever. Great. Thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. We'll be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, Visit LibertyOnCall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. 
If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we're talking about the Iran deal and what it does to the price of oil, the oil industry, and specifically connecting the dots on President Obama saying, great Iran, you can export your oil, but yet saying no to Keystone, which means Canada can't expect export their oil, and not lifting the oil export ban in the United States, which means we in the United States cannot export our oil. In my opinion, how crazy is that? Well, to talk with us in this segment, I'm pleased to have Toby Mack with me. And Toby and I just met a little bit ago by telephone, and, uh, you know, we really have so much similar views on things, I can't imagine that we haven't connected previously. But Toby is the president and CEO of the Energy Equipment and Infrastructure Alliance. And I'm, before we get into uh, lifting the oil export ban, I'm going to let Toby tell you a little bit more about the Energy Equipment and Infrastructure Alliance. So, Toby, I'm delighted to have you with us for the first time and hopefully not the last on America's Voice for Energy. Thank you, Marita, and I'm looking forward to uh, being a, um, a, a returning participant. Uh, EEIA, <laughs> EEIA, as Energy Equipment and Infrastructure Alliance is known, uh, is, represents the uh, shale, oil, and gas supply chain. And what we mean by the supply chain are not the oil and gas producers, but all of the businesses and industries and workers uh, that provide products and services and materials and supplies uh, to uh, companies that are engaged in energy production or supply components and materials to other companies that supply energy-producing companies. So we're that big, vast 50-state uh, um, uh, network of, of companies that thrive when energy production thrives and um, and who uh, are necessary for um, a healthy and, and, and productive energy production sector. Well, so that's what we want to talk about. Obviously, on America's Voice for Energy each week, we talk about a different topic based on what's going on in the news that has to do with energy. And uh, this week, obviously, Iran is really uh, capturing the headlines, specifically uh, President Obama's nuclear deal. And we've seen the price of oil drop. Uh, which is, of course, bad for producers in America and I suppose is bad for uh, the supply chain that you represent as well. Well, it sure is. And, you know, first of all, one of the reasons that it makes absolutely no sense for us not to export our crude oil is that, uh, for one thing, uh, American producers are taking a 10 to $15 a barrel penalty uh, for not being able to move their crude oil outside the country. The internal market is so glutted on its own oil, which is you know beyond our capacity to refine, um, that um, that American producers are impaired and handicapped in their ability to produce the oil. If they could have access to uh, the global customer base, they could they could significantly ramp up their production. 
uh, and compete with other countries that are free to export their crude. We're the only country in the world where the producers can't export. And as you properly point out, if Iran, uh, and, and probably will, uh, suddenly be able to put a million and a half to two million barrels of oil a day on the market, that's only going to exacerbate uh, the situation. And so giving our guys the ability to sell into that same market will uh, will counter some of the, uh, the the free shot that Iran is going to have at customers that we, we might otherwise be able to sell to. Yeah, Toby, my next question may be a little bit out of your scope, and you're welcome to say it's out of your scope if it is. But I find that the average person um, doesn't get what I'm about to say, and, and I think they don't get it. Even I, who, you know, I've been doing this now for eight and a half years. I don't come from an energy background. I say that because you and I don't know each other well. Our regular listeners know that. But um, I have a hard time really articulating why it's important that we be allowed to export. You know, like Bill O'Reilly, who is so right on on so many issues, is so wrong on energy. And, for example, when the Keystone debate was raging, he would come on and say, well, I would be for Keystone as long as we keep all the oil here and we don't export it. And sometimes it's hard to communicate to the average person why we need to be exporting it when, when they say, well, wait, we're still importing from the Middle East, so shouldn't we keep it all here? What's the argument there? Yeah, well, first of all, it's it's a false choice because uh, importing crude oil, those, those are decisions made by individual refiners who are trying to match their refining capacity with the type of crude oil that their, their refineries are So that's are a good optimized. answer. That's the first time I've kind of heard it phrased yeah. that way. It's a decision by the individual refiners to be able to access the crude from the source that best fits their needs. Yeah, and they refiner, refineries are configured to refine certain grades and types of crude. Uh, the crude that we're producing in such vast quantities here in this country is light, sweet crude. And right. refineries, our refineries are configured for the heavy, sour varieties that used to come from Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and other places around the world. And so the refineries can't uh, efficiently and economically process the light, sweet that we're producing here. So they choose to import the heavy, sour from other countries uh, and those are decisions that are made based on their own economics and also, by the way, on transportation costs. It may be more economical for them to take a barrel of oil from somewhere uh, across the Atlantic than it would be to take it, for example, from somewhere uh, on the west coast of the United States. And so those are all kind of independent market decisions that are made by independent companies uh, to, to try to, you know, increase their returns on their investments and their refining capacity. Uh, so explain then the next question I have that out of your opening comments, that discount factor. Again, that, I think that's another thing that's really hard for people to comprehend. Yeah, it's, it's, it really is. And it's, it's, there are two prices for crude oil. One is the global price of crude oil, and it's often referred to as the Brent or the North Sea price. That's the benchmark price. And then there is the internal U.S. price for crude oil, which is uh, referred to as WTI or West Texas Intermediate. Uh, the price of Brent crude today is 6 or $7 a barrel uh, higher than the price of WTI. And the reason for that is because we have so much uh, West Texas Intermediate uh, price crude 
um, that we can't export, that the refiners in the U.S. are able to, to demand uh, deep discounts to take the crude, uh, which otherwise would just not have an outlet. And so, so they can they can enforce these discounts on American producers. Now they refine the crude oil that they that they process in the refineries, and they sell that on the global market. We, there is no restriction on exporting finished products such as gasoline, right. diesel, jet fuel, and so forth. And the price for that product is tied to or pegged to the global price of crude, which is the higher Brent price. And so the refineries uh, are buying it very, very cheap, uh, the, the what they can handle here, and selling it on the much higher global price. And so the refineries, many of them at least, are naturally opposed to lifting the ban because they would lose that uh, – that rather um, remarkable uh, advantage. Profit margin. Yeah, and um, but they're not. It's not being passed on to consumers because again, consumers are paying for U.S. gasoline and U.S. diesel and U.S. jet fuel based on the global, not the U.S. price. Well, I appreciate you clarifying that because again, it's it's a hard concept, I think for the average person to understand. And, Toby, I'm embarrassed to say that uh, when I switched from my stopwatch to read your biography, I messed up my stopwatch, and I know you've got one going on there. How many more minutes do we have for this segment? Well, we're at exactly nine minutes and 15 seconds into it. So, <laughs> Okay, nine minutes and 15, and see how my clock shows 2.25. So we've got a little bit of time. I'll, I'll, I, if you don't mind, kind of just keep an eye on that for me. But sure. uh, let's go with with the supply chain, which is really your area. You've done a great job explaining kind of those two big issues there. So let's talk about some of the jobs, and are they just in the oil field? No, the jobs aren't just in the oil field. As a matter of fact, for every job in the oil field, there are three jobs in the supply chain. Um, these jobs are in industries such as manufacturing of instruments and equipment and machinery, uh, producers of materials and supplies, uh, such as cement, sand, uh, people that supply construction uh, for energy infrastructure, uh, people that supply uh, professional services such as architectural and engineering, uh, financial and insurance services. And so this vast supply chain of uh, actually 60 different industries that are not oil and gas producing industries uh, provide these products and services necessary uh, to oil well, and gas are they are they centered around the oil patch or are they nationwide? They're in all fifty states. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's it's remarkable when you look at how they 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 are distributed around the country. Yeah, uh, you think of a bulldozer, uh, which normally one thinks of as built to make a road or or, or dig a foundation for a building. Actually, earth-moving equipment is used extensively in digging trenches for pipelines, uh, leveling well pads, and so forth, and so. Um, construction machinery, as an example, uh, is made predominantly in the Midwest, way outside of an oil-producing area. And so, so you have you have Illinois, which has a large construction machinery industry, is actually the third largest beneficiary in terms of jobs created um, by energy production in the country. And so, after California and, and Texas. Illinois would benefit the most from lifting the crude oil export ban, for example, by 2018. And who would have guessed? Yeah, exactly. 30,000 new jobs in the state of Illinois if you lift the crude oil export ban, and it's all because of capital equipment made in the state. 
And that's just so an how example. Many, how many jobs are you seeing um, this would generate? Uh, we see lifting the export ban by 2018 in the supply chain. When we're not talking about the producer level. In the supply chain, if you were to lift the export ban this year, by 2018, you would have 440,000 new uh, jobs created. And these are good jobs. These are high-paying jobs on average. And are many of them union jobs, I'd assume? A lot of them are. Uh, great, great numbers. As a matter of fact, in our, in our alliance, in EEI's alliance, we have two major labor unions that are very, very close partners with our objectives, the uh, International Union of Operating Engineers and the uh, Laborers International Union, or LIUNA. And so they are, they are energetically promoting the uh, lifting the ban. So the, are they, pr are they pressing the White House? Uh, I hope they are. Uh, I, th I think they're talking to uh, folks that normally support labor and uh, telling them uh, what the jobs upside is in this policy. And uh, so I think they're doing a pretty good job of, uh, of trying to make their case. Yeah. Uh, we should be about out of time by my vague calculations. Is that right? We are exactly out of time right now. All right. Well, we, I, we have a couple more seconds that we I can let you give us uh, your website uh, for people to check out the supply chain. I know I saw a great graphic on there. Yes, we're at www.eeia.org, uh, and... Um, and we encourage people to go there and learn more about the supply chain and the uh, really remarkable economics uh, about it. And that graphic that you referred to shows the remarkable complexity and depth of the supply chain. Well, Toby Mack, thank you so much for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Thank you, Marita. It was my pleasure, and I look forward to talking with you again. Thank you. We'll be right back. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government as well as those involved in legal cases have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. From Doug Dahlgren, an action series that grabs you and won't let go. Four members of Congress all die within months. Each death appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead Revolutionary War heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search uncovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun, Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, in Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Today we're talking about uh, the Iran deal and what that has to do with oil exports, even in America. And uh, we've got a ban on oil exports, as we've been talking about in our previous two segments. And we're going to continue that conversation now with Representative Bill Flores from Texas. And, uh, Bill, welcome to America's Voice for Energy. I so appreciate you taking your time out of your busy day there on the Hill to address this important topic. 
Well, Marita, thank you for inviting us to participate today, and I look forward to being a part of this important uh, discussion. So tell us, tell me, where do you see? You're on the Hill. What's happening? What's the inside story? Well, the inside story is is that a group of us are working diligently on a bipartisan basis uh, to lift the uh, the internal sanctions that we have that prevent us from being being able to export American oil. Uh, we are. I, I, I think we're in really good shape in the House. I was hoping we could do it before the August work period begins, but it looks to me like we're queued up pretty pretty well to do something in September. I'm going to jump in here with a slightly different topic. You said the August work period begins, and I love that you call it that rather than the August recess. I spent time a few years ago with Congressman Steve Pierce in New Mexico. I spent three days on the road with him, uh, helping him write his book, uh, his biography. And every time I hear someone talk about they're going home for recess, I just cringe because that man, I mean, he worked so hard. Uh, this, this was hardly a recess, and he kind of convinced me that where you all belong really is home in the district talking with the people and finding out what the people want. So I appreciate uh, that's a little tangent there, I realize, but I appreciate you calling it the August work period or whatever it was you just said. Well, I, you know, we, we typically work pretty hard up here in D.C., uh, but, but when we go home to our constituents, I, I really think that's where we work harder. Uh, so, and, you know, we'll log thousands and thousands of miles going to see our constituents and holding meetings and town halls and plant tours and talking to hardworking American families that are just getting killed by some of the policy decisions of the Obama administration. Yeah, that is so true, and this policy is one of them. Let me mention something. I've addressed this many times. I've, I've talked about this oil export ban several times in the last few months. And in our first segment of the show, we had Dan Kish from the Institute for Energy Research, and as much as I knew, he brought up something that I had thought of, and that is that the oil export ban was put in place in a time of price controls. And the export ban was put in place so that the greedy oil companies uh, didn't get around the price controls and sell their product in the free market. And when the price controls were lifted by President Reagan, the uh, export ban was not lifted at the time because as he told me it was just kind of a non-issue because we didn't have enough oil really to export. The only reason the export ban was put in place was to keep the price controls effective. And I've never, as much as I know, I never heard that angle before. Is that something that you all are discussing? Well, it is. Uh, but, and really, the export ban was put in place during a time of scarcity. And right. Many of us now, since the United States is now the number one producer of oil and gas in the world, and so folks like Bobby Jindal, the governor of Louisiana, and I, we recognized this starting two years ago. And mm -hmm. last year we published a piece called Organizing for Abundance, Making American Energy Superpower. And it was based on the fact that now we have abundant energy, and what's the best way to capture the value for the American people and for hardworking American families uh, from, the, from that, that technological transformation that's happening in this country. And so uh, today in the Energy and Commerce Committee, we're working on something called uh, Architecture of Abundance. So the, the Energy and Commerce Committee that I'm a member of actually sort of stole the name that Bobby and I were working on when we, when we published our piece. Uh, we need to lift this ban. Look, we all know that everybody is better off, not only hardworking Americans, but folks all over the world if you have free and fair trade for all products. 
And so the, the, to the extent that we have a surplus of oil and gas and we're selling it, we're helping all the major stakeholders in this. You're helping the consumers. You're helping the producers. You're helping the refiners that, do, uh, that, that refine the oil and gas. You're also helping the federal government reduce its deficit because you have more revenues coming to the federal government. So I think if we, if we can focus on what's best for those four stakeholders, then we'll make the right decision and we'll lift this ban. Uh, this is particularly important from a geopolitical perspective because well, you, we've got a bunch of, of uh, friends in Eastern and Western Europe that are concerned about the, the, um, the aggressive nature of uh, Putin and, and the, his fellow Russians. And so if, to the extent they could count on us to be a friendly supplier, uh, then I think that helps change the balance geopolitically. It helps those countries feel more confident about their, their, uh, their futures, and that way they can help uh, stand up to, to um, his bullying in that part of the world. Uh, I think also it's, it's just unbelievable that the president would want to lift the sanctions on Iranian oil, but then keep sanctions in place for American oil and keep us from exporting our own uh, blood, you know, the the, 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 the results of our work in this particular space. And it's also a shame that he won't let the Canadians export their oil to the United States. It just, his policy decisions just make me scratch my head in amazement. Y'all, they make me cringe, but uh, I, I want to go back. It's probably better. I was trying to be nice. So. Yeah, well, you, you you have to do that. I can say the outrageous things. You've got to say things that you can, you know, be quoted on and not get in trouble for. <laughs> so I can say the outrageous stuff. I want to go back to the geopolitical energy security issue for a moment. Um, this particular column that I re- wrote has really gotten a lot of attention. It's, it's all over the Internet, and it's, it's generating a lot of comment. And one of the places where I've, it's a new source for me to be published in is a, web, a website called oilpro.com, and uh, there's a, I've gotten particular uh, kind of attack, and it's from industry folks, about my comment that it will, je- it will help with energy security, and it's exactly what you brought up about Russia in my column, because two weeks ago I wrote on Japan restarting their nuclear reactors. Uh, in my research for that, I realized... I discovered that the uh, 70s oil embargo, the Arab oil embargo, really did horrible damage to Japan's economy because they didn't have really another source for that oil. And that's kind of where I was coming from when I said that exporting our product will help uh, global energy security. Do you have any additional comment on that? Well, I mean, I I think you're prophetic in this. You're exactly right, because to the extent that we are exporting and providing energy security for the world in terms of uh, secure supplies of energy, in other words, you don't have to worry about uh, some despot uh, regime in the Middle East that decides they're going to do something uh, uh, silly or... or, you know, I mean, they, they used oil as a weapon, and they used oil as a weapon in the 70s against the United States. And so to the extent that we are a secure supplier of oil, then other economies are, are uh, perform better. Uh, people have better jobs in those countries. Those countries have more revenues through their governments. They can help provide. That gives them more resources to provide for their own defense, which means that the United States uh, has to, uh, less of a burden uh, in terms of trying to, to protect those countries. I mean, if you look at where we are today. That's a good angle. I appreciate you bringing that up. Oh, yeah. I mean, look at today. I mean, we've got troops scheduled, uh, scattered throughout the Middle East. 
Mm-hmm. And, and one of the reasons is is because that's where there's a large supply of, of uh, oil for the world's economy, and you need to make sure that that area is secure. What if you got to the position where we didn't have to worry about that as much because we were the major supplier? And think about this. This is what Bobby Jindal and I wrote about in our piece, uh, our 21st century American energy strategy. You could take the, the, our friends in Canada and our friends in Mexico, combined with our production and resource base, and we become the new OPEC for the world. We become the, the, the strong and stable and secure provider of energy resources for the world. And all of us are better off. Not only those three countries, but everybody in the world is better off because you've got this big behemoth of secure energy supply around, around the world. Yeah, and we're secure and reliable. We're, we, we don't have that kind of history as the, as the Middle East does of you know, using our resources as a lever with with other Correct. countries. Correct. Exactly. Okay, so back to the Hill. So that you were hoping in the House, I just kind of distracted you on my August recess comments, but you were hoping that uh, you, you all in the House would vote on this uh, before uh, the August work period, and that didn't happen. So what, what, what are you seeing? What's your predictions on the Hill? My prediction is that sometime in September we'll have a vote on this particular issue. Uh, it, it will pass on a standalone basis, uh, I think, in the House. I'm not certain what will happen in the Senate. Uh, I feel fairly confident that the uh, president will veto it because he views the interest of the Iranians more highly than he views the interest of hardworking American families. Uh, but that said, I mean, there are a lot of must-pass pieces of legislation that will be coming up. And so I would see us attaching this to those pieces of legislation. I've already talked to our leadership in the House about doing that. They, you know, this is not a slam dunk, but they seem to be accommodative uh, or they're willing to talk about that. Uh, for instance, you can add it to a highway bill. You could add it to a debt ceiling vote. There are all kinds of things that, that you can add this to because it's the right thing to do for the American people. Um, and so I, I see, I, I feel pretty good about it. We've had hearings in the Energy and Commerce Committee that I'm a member of. We've had uh, the equivalent of hearings for the Republican Study Committee that I'm the chairman of on this particular subject matter. Uh, we've had roundtable discussions. There, when you Again, when you look at the four principal stakeholders, consumers, producers, refiners, and the federal government, Nobody really loses out of this. And so our goal is to to try to to make sure that all Americans know that we're better off uh, inherently uh, because we we have a free market for oil in the world and that the United States is one of the principal suppliers. So I I feel pretty good about it. Uh, We have also, uh, we did a... a, uh, sort of a, temp, a test whip of the vote uh, earlier this week. I don't know what the results of that are, but, but my impression is that it came out pretty uh, pretty positively. And look, this is bipartisan, too. They're, they're, uh, particularly among Democrats, they're, they're scratching their heads over why the president would lift the sanctions on Iranian oil, but not U.S. producers. It just doesn't make sense to them or to, to any rational uh, person. Yeah, I spent a lot of time before I wrote my column trying to understand uh, when this is a law passed by Congress, how the president uh, can lift it. And I actually got differing resu- feedback from people I queried about, can the president do this on, the, on his own, or does he need to say to Congress, give me a bill and I will sign it? I mean, where's his influence in your opinion? Well, let me, say it, let me put it this way. Um, I, the president may have that authority, 
but based on the the uh, some of the things he's done in the past, I don't trust him to exercise it appropriately. For mm-hmm. instance, he continues to veto Keystone or, or to, to stop Keystone, even though the American people want it. They know it creates tens of, tens of thousands of jobs. It's good for the GDP. It's good for their salaries. Uh, it's, it helps. Yeah, in my, la- my last segment, I had uh, Corey Goulet, who's president of Key- Keystone Products. Uh, yeah. He's going to be joining us for the last segment of the show. Yeah, and so I'll, I'll let him talk about it. So I, I think that, uh, you know, why, why, why bother about whether the president has discretion or not? Let's just, Congress, do your job and order it to be done, to be lifted. And so that's the direction I'm headed. Well, I hope that we can get through. I appreciate your time. We've been talking with Representative Bill Flores, uh, congressman from the great state of Texas, the 17th Congressional District, and I appreciate you taking your time to join us today on America's Voice for Energy. Well, I appreciate it, Marty, and I'd ask our listeners to continue to remember our, our troops around the world and our thoughts and prayers. Great. Appreciate that reminder. And uh, call your congressman, call your senators, tell them that you want you support lifting the oil export ban. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to our final segment of America's Voice for Energy. Today we've been talking about the Iran nuclear deal and the impact that has on the oil industry. We've talked about why it's important for oil exports in the United States. And in my column, I also address Keystone Pipeline because I see that these three issues are all connected, which is why I gave my column the title, Obama, Iranian Oil Good. Canadian oil, bad. American oil, bad. So I'm excited for our final segment today to kind of wrap things up with Corey Goulet, who is the president of Keystone Products. And Corey, as I said that, I'm realizing you're from Canada probably. That might have been Goulet, and I pronounced it Goulet. How do you pronounce your last name? Uh, It's Goulet, Marita, and thanks for having me. 
Well, I'm glad to have you with us. I've talked about uh, Keystone Pipeline. I've spoken at rallies uh, for the Keystone Pipeline almost uh, a year and a half ago or so now. We had a rally in Albuquerque, New Mexico, that was for the Keystone Pipeline. And uh, the then-Canadian uh, Council General, Paula Caldwell St. Ange, was there. And I remember at that rally, she pointed to the window. We were in a building, and she pointed to a window, and outside the window, Window, uh, were protesters with signs, holding signs at the window. So, of course, we closed the blinds so we didn't have to look at their signs. But she waved towards the window and she said, we will extract our resources and we will not let them stop us. And oh, how I wish we had that kind of mindset coming out of the White House. Where where do you all see we are now? Obviously, in my column, I cited a rumor that I've heard, a well-sourced rumor, that the president is finally ready to say no to the Keystone Pipeline. Um, so, and I understand that that's not something that you all have heard. Well, we've heard similar rumors, uh, Miranda, but but you know we we've heard many of these rumors over the last few years and and most of them or all of them relative to a denial have have turned out not to be true so we'll continue to advance the project and uh, our shippers remain 100% committed to the project and and therefore so do we well, I appreciate that, and, I, and truly, I do hope my rumor is wrong. It does come, did come to me from some well-sourced places in D.C., but, you know, in the, and, and from my perspective, the reality is what isn't really about whether or not my rumor is, is correct, uh, but that's certainly uh, the attitude that we've seen coming out of Washington, and yet, uh, I mean, I repeatedly say something to the effect of, Poor TransCanada, they had no idea when they filed this application that this would be any different from the dozens of other pipelines that are crossing the U.S.-Canadian border. No, we, we didn't expect it to be any different. In fact, we just, uh, we just uh, received a permit for the original base keystone and, and started construction on it. And, uh, you know, that took less than two years. And, and now it's been several years for the Keystone XL permit. And, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of at a loss, uh, as, as many Americans are, as to uh, why uh, it would be something that uh, America wouldn't want to do. Uh, we certainly think it's the best interest of America. Um, it, first of all, it creates uh, thousands of jobs, 42,000 direct, indirect, and induced jobs. And, uh, and adds to the economy some $200 million in wages. Uh, it'll also have a significant amount of tax revenue to the counties in, in which, uh, in, and there's 27 or so over three states in which, in which we would operate, uh, some $60 million a year. Um, and then, you know, you talk about energy independence and, uh, uh, the U.S. Energy Administration, uh, Information Administration uh, has made it clear that the U.S. will continue to rely on imports, notwithstanding the uh, significant increase in production in America. And uh, and this is this is an opportunity for North America to be more energy independent and uh, and provide us with more energy security. So it's it's unclear to us, well, you know, uh, why why it wouldn't go ahead. Certainly, the public believes it's important uh, in the numerous. Uh, 
uh, polls that have been conducted uh, over the last uh, year number of years, uh, between 60 and 80 percent, depending on the jurisdiction of Americans, believe this project should be done. Yeah, it is. It's it's got strong support. I had a, I, would, I speak at a lot of oil and gas industry events, and I recall I was speaking at one in February in Bakersfield, California, to the Association of Energy Service Companies, and I talked positively about Keystone as a part of my speech. And a gentleman came up to me and and said, you know, I disagree with you on Keystone. And he was in the oil industry. He said, I, you know, we've got so much here, we don't need. Uh, Canada's oil. What do you say to someone like that? Well, certainly, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the production in the U.S. has increased dramatically, but but the net imports will continue for decades to come, and uh, and the demand is not going uh, anywhere, but uh, you know, but up in the, in the near future, and and it, so as such, uh, it is required. Look, this is about getting uh, heavy crude oil to the Gulf Coast project. Right. I was just going to bring that up because what 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 the keystone, what the pipeline would bring in is a different kind of oil than what is being produced uh, in most of America these days. That that's correct. It's about getting heavy uh, crude oil into those refineries in the Gulf Coast area. Those are the refineries who continue to import heavy crude that the uh, that the U.S. isn't producing in large quantities, and they'll continue to to import from the Middle East and Venezuela unless this pipeline is uh, is built and displacing that crude. And you know th- these countries don't share American values and don't have the same environmental regulations and certainly don't have the same freedom uh, that Americans have. And and therefore, uh, we think the choice is simple. You know, as an adder to that, uh, you know, this pipeline will also bring about 100,000 barrels per day from the Williston Basin into the pipeline. It will be delivered in Cushing, Oklahoma, which is a hub in the United States that can be used to transport it to places that do use the lighter crude from that Williston Basin. And and so that's been a a benefit as well because, you know, right now all that crude is transporting by rail, uh, which certainly is not as cost-effective, but, you know, as importantly, isn't as environmentally friendly and certainly isn't as safe. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I have a question on that. I wrote a column of few years back, I mean, really, I've been writing about Keystone for years, and it said, you know, even with, the title was something like, even without Keystone, Canadian oil is coming to the U.S., and so it was kind of like, you who, folks, well, this oil's coming here. Anyway, it's coming in trucks and trains, but you mentioned the Williston Basin, and here's something that I don't understand, and you're probably not the engineer, and you may not be able to, uh, to answer this question for me. I understand I've been to the oil sands, I've toured the oil sands, I've watched the process uh, taking place there and found it to be absolutely fascinating. But I, I, So I understand the heavy crude and so forth. What I don't understand, and I'm a communicator, I'm not the engineer either, but how can we put the light sweet crude from North Dakota and the heavy crude from Canada into the same pipeline and have them come out at the other end? Well, it's actually very, uh, very simple, and, and uh, it's done all the time today. Uh, in fact, not all the crude we transport from Canada is heavy crude, although the predominant amount is. But we do what's called batching. And, and in essence, what you do is you transfer from one uh, storage tank to another, 
and um, and you, you you ship those as sequential ba- batches down the pipeline. And if you maintain a high enough flow, uh, you, those those batches remain separate and distinct. Really, very little very little mixing, uh, you know, at at the interface between those two batches. And so it can be done very easily, and and that's the way that you can deliver a customer's product. Uh, directly to their refinery or to their customer, another refinery, uh, and say, that's the product I produced, and I'm delivering it now to another customer. So it's, uh, it's actually... And, and, the, and the technology is there to kind of track along the path of the pipeline um, where that batch is? Well, it certainly is. We have some very wow. sophisticated computer programs in our operations control center in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, that track that. And on top of that, you rely on uh, densitometers and other uh, uh, instruments at the at the takeoff point, at the delivery point, and those can tell you exactly when that new batch has arrived just by the change in density of the products. Wow. I, mean, I think that's something, I mean, you know, I, I certainly, as I said, I'm not an engineer. I'm the communications kind of person. Um, but I've been talking about Keystone and writing on it, and I have never understood that. So I would assume that the average person out there, you know, really doesn't understand the technology of this. I mean, for me, I'm picturing like a, a black and tan, you know, a, a beer stein with black and tan in it. You know, like how do you keep this this separate when you've got the light, sweet, crude, and the heavy, dark? So that's that's very helpful to understand. Well, well, yeah, it's it, it's amazing how the technology has changed. And you know, speaking of technology, we, you know, we've agreed to 59 special conditions that the Department of State have asked us to include in our project, and and those conditions have to do with the construction, uh, the materials that we select the operation and maintenance of the facility. And, and those conditions uh, are, are really at the, at the forefront of technology uh, in, and will allow us to, to really produce the, uh, you know, or build the safest pipeline in America is how we de- try to describe it. I think the final supplemental environmental impact statement, the Department of State concluded that this uh, pipeline would have a degree of safety higher than than any other or or most other pipelines uh, that are built today, uh, you know, against the uh, the normal code. Well, I, like you said, that's that's where the technology is today. We've just got a minute and a half or so left. What are is there anything else that you see as a, a real disconnect or a misunderstanding with the American public or or the White House? On this issue, well, you know, I, I certainly think uh, you know the uh, the public, as I stated earlier, um, you know, supports this project. So do the three governors of the three states that we cross, and uh, and so so really, this comes down to a question of where do Americans want to get their crude oil from? Uh, do they want to get them from the Middle East and Venezuela, or do they want to get it from somewhere else? Uh, you know, and, and, of course, the opponents to Keystone don't want us to get it at all. Well, they don't, but, but the fact remains uh, we will continue to need uh, crude oil for the, for, the, for the foreseeable future. And this crude oil is just displacing other heavy crude oil. People will say that this, uh, this project increases greenhouse gases. Look, the greenhouse gases are produced um, 
in the production of the oil and in the use of the oil, and all we're doing is transporting uh, that crude oil and, and really just increases in, uh, into the greenhouse gases. It also has a minimal impact to the environment. These are conclusions that the final supplemental environmental impact statement uh, drew in, the, you know, in, in their, in their uh, report. Uh, finally, you know, you talk about energy independence, you talk about the minimal impact on the environment and greenhouse gases, but, you know, as important is the impact to the economy and the 42,000 direct, indirect, and induced jobs that this would create um, and the $200 million in, in salaries. This is an, you know, this is a several billion dollar size project that's funded uh, completely with private uh, by private corporations and requires no funding at all from the government. Yeah. We're out of time. I appreciate your time today. Corey Goulet, president of Keystone Products, thanks for joining us on America's Voice for Energy. And thanks for listening. Please join us again.